the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report, and great to be together. A lot happening. I've been looking forward to uh, today for quite a while. I knew that I would be interviewing uh, my friend Martin Dugard, the author of a new book, Taking, uh, excuse me, Taking Berlin. In his taking series, he's an author who's written with Bill O'Reilly. He's written with uh, James Patterson. He's even written with um, the uh, the great um, uh, Mark Burnett, who is a uh, the the um, uh, reality TV show icon. So Martin Dugard will be on talking about his book, which is out very soon. Uh, it's out uh, November first, and uh, his book is called Taking Berlin. So it'll be great to talk with him, and also we'll talk with Adam Anjevsky about uh, transparency and what if there is a Republican House and Senate and some Republican leadership across the country, how can transparency fit in uh, as of policy issues? So we'll talk with him also. But first, let me tell you, I want to revisit something, and I want to make it a. Um, I want to make it the wink today, what you need to know. And that is this. It is my case, my case for uh, President uh, uh, Donald Trump to do something that nobody sees actually coming, which literally nobody sees is possible. Nobody sees is likely. Nobody sees out there. Nobody's talking about it. And that is Donald Trump could decide not to run for president at least initially, and instead become Speaker of the House. Now, a couple of things. First, Speaker of the House does not need to be a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. That is explicit. Um, that was done. It's been talked about. It's never been tested in the courts, but I don't think anybody thinks it, it, it would be um, anything other than possible. And, and it has been talked about in the past. At one point, uh, people talked about whether Newt Gingrich could come back and serve as speaker when uh, the Republicans had power. And I think Boehner was resigning or something. And it was so it was discussed. So that's one. He could do it. Number two, why would he? Well, the answer is we have such weak leadership in this country that we can't wait for a president. And so we would be effectively be electing a kind of prime minister, a kind of um counterweight to the lost soul and lost leadership of joe biden and remember so let's talk about four or five categories of leadership where the speaker of the house especially if it were donald trump could play a a very very outsized role first with the military well, the, the House of Representatives does in control the budget for the military, and that's a big one. So the influence will be there. Also, Article One, the war powers is in the, the power to declare war is the president. So excuse me, is the Congress's, not the president's. So a speaker of the House could say, you know what, we're going to we're going to say to the budget, we're going to say, I mean, the military, we're talking about your budget. We want to know where your priorities are. We're not going to approve things that we don't think are important. And we're not going to let you declare war. And go about that executive branch without our approval. Right there, you become the second most important leader in the country behind the president. The president still has the nuclear uh, football and still has the right in an emergency to act. But you become the leader, uh, uh, the second leader, the second most important, second most influential leader in the world because you're number two to the president. 
Second, on foreign affairs, well, you have the same thing. You have the budget. So the budget of the State Department, you can ask questions. But also, we have a tradition of the uh, of the Speaker of the House, Pelosi, visiting Taiwan. Uh, Tip O'Neill was the one I remember, the first one who did this. It, as a bully pulpit, because you control the wallet, we control the budget, the Speaker of the House, by definition, right away, the president and this and President Trump knows all these leaders. So he's not having to learn. He's calling up Macron and saying, hey, what's going on with NATO? Why haven't you guys paid your NATO before we give you more money in the budget for NATO? Why aren't you guys paying your fair share or better? Why aren't you making everybody pay their share? Now, I know what people would say. People would say, oh, no, you're undercutting the presidency. That's our system. Just because we haven't had a dynamic leader who will use the system that way doesn't mean it's not designed that way. Similarly with the judiciary. If the courts are out of control at the federal court level, the district court level, you always can uh, appeal to the Supreme Court. That's true. But you can also, as Speaker of the House, file bills that take away jurisdiction from cases. Cases that have jurisdiction on, say, marriage. You could say that's not the federal issue. It should never be the federal issue. If it's signed by President uh, Biden, he doesn't have to. He could veto it, and you could change it. You could fight about it. But you could lead on it. And it's very similar on abortion. That's another one. You could, similar on the January 6th stuff. You could pass all kinds of, propose all kinds of laws through bills, and you could get an argument going, and some of them you'd win. Remember, Bill Clinton vetoed twice welfare reform, which was welfare to work, before he signed it. Uh, And they threatened to override it. I don't think they ever did. Truman uh, vetoed a number of times one of the big revenue acts that came out of the House and Senate in the 1940s, I think 1948, that included the filing jointly uh, for families, for uh, married couples, and uh, and so you could, and I think he vetoed it twice, and it finally was either overridden or he uh, just signed it. President Donald Trump could play a role on education. He could play a role as Speaker of the House. There's no limit to the bully pulpit. And again, because our leader, here's the, here's the reason it's such a good idea. What you need to know is we do have an imbalance. Even when it's a person you like as president, like I like Trump's policies better, there's too much power in the executive. The presidency has gotten too powerful. So if you had Donald Trump become Speaker and invigorate the congressional powers, Article 1, it'd be a big deal. Right now we have Article 3, the judges, the courts, the Supreme Court is effectively one of the most powerful institutions ever. It wasn't designed that way. And right now we have a presidency that has been given far too much, an executive branch given far too much of a blank check on powers. So invigorate and reinvigorate the Congress as a counterweight to that, and it's a huge deal. And here's a great trick. Even if Donald Trump runs for president, If the Congress has become more powerful, the next speaker, the next leader of the Senate, if it's the other party, can be a check on Trump. Donald Trump for Speaker of the House. I'm telling you, it's a really good idea. He should consider it. All right, we'll take a break and come back. We'll talk with Adam Andrzejewski, and we also will talk today with Martin Dugard. Be right back. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, I've told you a hundred times, thousand times, I don't know. Openthebooks.com. Openthebooks.com. If you go there, there's more there there. There's more opportunities for you to learn about transparency, about government spending, about what's going on. And they, it starts with their own. If you go and look at their own stuff, they talk about what they do, why they do it, how where it comes from. And our guest is the founder and the head of Open the Books, uh, Adam Andrzejewski. Welcome back, sir. How are you? 
Well, it's great to be on the program, man. Thanks for having me back. So my, I think that after an election, especially when there's a bunch of incumbents that lose, is the perfect time for open the books. Maybe it's the window where you can say, hey, guys, before you become the incumbent, look at these principles and let's really do something uh, about being transparent. You know, wh- whether in someone's office, a new office holder or as a as a governing principle, you know, if there's a new House and Senate up in Washington. You say, hey, guys, if you want to get to the bottom of things, you can argue over who did what. That's helpful. Get to the bottom of it. But the bigger thing is show where the money went and and go for the future. So it must be sort of exciting to see the results of the election, no matter which way it goes, to go and see who wants to do something about transparency. Well, exactly, because there's a government has declared war on transparency, not only at the federal level, but certainly that's significant, but at the state and local levels across the country as well. And it's a bipartisan war. I mean, out in South Dakota, you've got Governor Kristi Noem. She has an administrative rule in place. We asked her to change the rule. It went all the way up to her general counsel. They refused to change the rule. And, and what the rule says is that if you're a state public employee, uh, citizens have to request their salary one at a time using a state website to do it. In other words, you have to spell their name correctly. We think it's outrageous. They refuse to change that rule. So you can see that it doesn't matter if there's an R or D after your last name. Oftentimes the disclosure of public spending, you know, politicians run on transparency. They get elected and they run away from it. Right, right, right. I also, um, we're talking Adam Banjewski again, go to open, uh, open the books.com. I wonder about whether there could be a new vision for oversight, especially at the national, the federal level. In other words, you you know, you, you close your eyes and you say, okay, well, like when we go to get to the bottom of something, are we going to be operating on on soundbite, you know, policy, soundbite politics, as opposed to sound policy? So, for example, um, if instead of getting to the bottom only of, I don't know, uh, um, well, I want to get to the bottom of the Fauci, and you've done a lot of work on this, where where the money go in the NIH, who has the patents, where's the money, but also um, real transparency, like say, look, if you're not going to tell us. Uh, who chose to do it this way or that way, how it happened, because I bet they'll be running from the hills. It looks like Fauci's going to get out of office in time to not have to answer some of his questions, he thinks. But then then make sure it's transparent where the money went, where it goes. And and even if they had to make it disclose it to Congress and not publicly, if there's some reason. I'm not saying there is a reason, but Congress is, as you know, there's going to be Adam policymakers that say, oh, well, we don't want to be too hard. These are important things, blah, blah, blah. But let's get to the bottom of where the money went. Well, exactly. And you referenced the third party paid royalties over at the National Institutes of Health. This is a huge issue. We launched this in May. Immediately, 36 hours later, led to a U.S. House Appropriations Committee hearing with Michigan Representative John Molinaire. Right. He questioned the acting director of NIH, Lawrence Tabak, for five minutes on these third party royalties. Tabak ends up admitting at the three minute marker that every single one of the payments is a potential conflict of interest. Yet here's what's going on. NIH still to this day is redacting, blanking out, erasing the name of the third party payer, think pharmaceutical company. You can't see it. We now know there's $325 million of these third-party paid royalties 
to the agency, its scientists and its leadership over the course of the last decade. And they won't even show you who's making the payment. They won't show the amount of the payment to the individual scientists. We only have the top line summary numbers and they won't uh, disclose the invention. They're blanking out, redacting, erasing the patent number and license number. Is that is there any reason that that couldn't be changed immediately? Is no, it, is there's it, no reason at all. In fact, up through two, we think it. You know, we're going back into court. Our our legal eagles are Judicial Watch, the public interest law firm in Washington D.C. We're going back into court to try to unredact the database to try to get to that information, because in 2005, the Associated Press they were the last ones to file a FOIA, a Freedom of Information Act request for the database. I saw that. I saw the press coverage back in 2005 when they uncovered scandal in that database. So, you know, that's what gave us the idea to refile it 17 years later. And then we've had to file the lawsuit. And now the production from the lawsuit is coming in with all these redactions that we just talked about. So Judicial Watch is back in front of the federal judge, and we're going to ask for an unredacted database. We may get it. If we don't, it's going to have to take congressional action, and they can certainly do it, and they can do it immediately. Uh, we're talking with Adam Anjevsky again, the uh, founder and the head of Open the Books. OpenTheBooks.com is the website. I, I'd be remiss. I know there's a lot of races and the, the politics is interesting. You and I like to talk about it. It's not really what Open the Books does at all. You're looking all across the place, which brings me to California. You, you guys did a lot of reporting on California on their spending. Um, some of it you were blocked from getting, but uh, it looks like California is going to continue with the same leadership uh, with almost no criticism of some of what you uncovered is it i guess it doesn't surprise you at this point you've been at this a while but it must frustrate you so i mean i think california is you know it's a one-party ruled state and so the only way to speak truth to power there is to follow the money and that's what our teams that open the books have been doing uh you know just over the summer we had huge success we opened the california state checkbook in fiscal year 2021 to sunshine for the first time in history. And then the first project we did is we matched up Governor Newsom's campaign donors with the state vendor list. And we found that he solicited up to a thousand state vendors for 6.2, I'm sorry, for $10.6 million in campaign cash. Those thousand vendors received $6.2 billion just in one year in state payments. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I mean, I guess that's my point is that, that it, 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 I mean, you do the old uh, shoe on the other foot. If the shoe was on the other foot, uh, I think there'd be stories every single day of the week. But be that as it may, no matter what, it's, it is surprising that uh, it's not getting more coverage. What's coming next? I mean, one of the interesting challenges uh, for you is that, you know, other guys and gals get in power and they may even be of the natural uh, party of yourself or others individually, uh, but you still got to be critical of them. I mean, where, where, you, where do you see the next uh, challenges coming? So I think the next challenges come from if, if we get a new house, you know, the yep. oversight and the yep. hearings. And I'd like to testify on a number of different issues. You know, I mean, I think uh, Republicans in the House should open up hearings on the $510,000 a year lifeguard paid in Los Angeles County. You know, in the American Rescue Act, Los Angeles County was bailed out for nearly $2 billion in that bill. It's so much money. They're paying their lifeguards up to a half million dollars a year now. I think they should be hauled in front of Congress and forced to justify their payroll. Um, That's just one issue. I'd like to appear in hearings, obviously, with a subject matter expert, uh, 
just last night, part two of the documentary from Robert F. Kennedy Jr. debuted called The Real Anthony Fauci. Mm. Uh, In part two, about three quarters of the way through, there's a five minute segment on his finances. It's all our work at OpenTheBooks.com. And I'm on camera probably two or three or four times during that five minute stretch giving commentary on it. They had interviewed me for the documentary and 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 it's now airing. So everyone needs to check that documentary out. Uh, part one and part two, the findings in there are, are pretty stunning. So, you know, I'd like to go in front of Congress and give give testimony on the on how NIH we had to file four federal lawsuits in the past year because they wouldn't even respond to our lawful Freedom of Information Act request. You know, and they need, you know, Congress needs to crack down. They need to exert their constitutional right of oversight and haul these unelected bureaucrats in front of these committees and force them to justify their actions, which are unjustifiable. Uh, we're talking again with Adam Anjevsky. Um, Let me finish by saying it must have been a great thrill, right? I, I can't find the date in front of me. You were out at the Reagan Ranch, right? And you gave a talk there. That Tell me about that. Well, it was very special. So the previous day, got a private tour of the Reagan Ranch. The host is Young America's Foundation. Yeah. Yeah. They do a terrific job. It's a uh, it's a rather rare tour. When Reagan was alive, there was only two leaders in the world that actually got to stay at the ranch. One was Mikhail Gorbachev and the other one was Queen Elizabeth. Wow. Um, so it was, it's always been very private. And it was an extraordinary experience. The next morning, I addressed their their conference and I spoke right to this issue of the depth of the swamp, hmm. you know, at the federal, state and local level, the examples of our of our oversight that have had an impact, that have created change, that have convened grand juries, hearings. You know, people have gone to jail. Yet, you know, we believe transparency revolutionizes U.S. public policy and politics. And I laid out all those stories. Mm, that's fantastic. Well, congratulations. Years ago, I went with my family up there, too. I don't know how I got that. I have to think through. But it is extraordinary. It's I've almost never been to someplace. You're up on this plateau on in the mountains and you can look kind of all, all 360 around. Uh, and it's just extraordinarily beautiful. You can tell why uh, President Reagan liked to be up there. It was kind of peaceful in the clouds, which is uh, what he used to call it. So uh, congratulations on that, Adam. Yeah, and they, they told you know amazing stories. So every time Reagan was at the ranch, and he spent a good deal of time there, one full year out of the eight years that he was president, he he stayed at his ranch in Santa Barbara, California. And so one of the you know every time he was there, the Russians would move, the Soviets would move a submarine <laughs> down from Alaska to off the shelf of right. California. Right. So they always had a helicopter running. Um, around the clock, they would have five minutes to take uh, the president and Nancy, throw them in the helicopter and get them out of there. Um, and they had because Nancy liked to talk a lot. So they had standing orders to grab Nancy, <laughs> muzzle her and throw her in the helicopter. That's fair. I was I did go up to where they had that helicopter pad. I think it was now taken down, but you could go like they got rid of the actual pad. But uh, anyway, well, Adam Anjevsky, open the books dot com. Go check it out. It's going to be exciting times after this election. I think your expertise will be I, I know it will be more valuable than ever. I hope it will be utilized more than ever, too. So thanks for the time. Thank you, Ed. All right. We'll take a break, everybody, and we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Don't forget, I'll actually put it just I have the link to that uh, 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 speech he gave up at the Reagan Ranch also. I'll put that up on the old social media. Be right back. Ed Martin here, Pro-America Report, back in a moment.
Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Many of my listeners know that I love talking to authors, and in the last uh, year or two, I've had the chance to visit with Martin Dugard, who has written a gazillion books. And the only thing, Martin, and by the way, martindugard.com is where you can really see everything he's been writing and doing and uh, track things. He's got a new book out on November 1st, Taking Berlin in the Taking series. We'll talk about it in a moment. But I don't think I realized, Martin, I knew you had early in your career, you'd written a book, or maybe more than one, with Patterson, um, and that was a big deal to me. In my head, I thought that that guy knows how to write. And uh, and, and but then I re- then I looked a little closer. You wrote a book either with him or about uh, Mark Burnett, who's one of the iconic figures uh, in in America. I mean, he he, he created Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he he deserves all the credit and all the blame. Uh, we can go there, but also, of course, Bill O'Reilly. So my first point blank: when somebody co-authors a book with you, you're a professional writer. Are you the guy writing and and he or she is giving you ideas? You know, it's, um, <clears throat> I'm going to give away trade secrets here. It's, <laughs> it's different and it's different in every case. Um, Mark is an old friend, actually Mark, when I, back when I was in the corporate world, striving to make it out and become a writer full time, cold called me one day and had read some of my stuff. And at the time he didn't have two pennies to rub together, but he convinced me to, by all the way to Madagascar to write stories about a, a team of his that was doing an adventure race, a two-week adventure race, which launched his career. When I got back from that gig, um, I quit my corporate job, and that launched my career as well. So Mark and I have stayed in touch throughout the years, and we're going on 30 years now. Um, so when I write, write for Mark, I just write everything. <laughs> and I just you know, I let him look at it, and... He might change a few things. Uh, with James Patterson, it is a formula. It's like he sends you an outline. He sends you um, the you know the way he wants things written. Um, you do the research. You send it in, um, and then he puts it into James Patterson voice. And he does. You know, he is such a prolific writer. Yeah. Really great guy. Really great to work with. And then with Bill and I, we have a. It's a very intense collaboration you know i research i put that research in narrative form i send it to bill um and then he looks at it and then we get on the phone and literally bill will read every word out loud and the stuff he doesn't like he will change Hmm. put into his voice might say to me go back and do more research but three different ways to write books and i have to say that other people have approached me about writing books and that formula doesn't always work because not everybody is meant to collaborate. It's just one of those things where some people think that when you write a book, it just magically appears and there's no work that goes into it. But everybody has to do their share if you're if you're doing a co-author gig. Yeah. Uh, we're, uh, we're, again, we're talking with Martin Dugard, and uh, I send people to his website. He talked about some of his early writings. If you go to martindugard.com, you can go back and see all the different uh, books he's written and things he's he's mentioned already. Uh, I, before I go, I well, I will talk about how to the Taking series is only you. So it's really your voice, your style. And I want to talk about the newest book, Taking Berlin, which just out. But I, I do want to um, uh, stop for a second on the uh, on the uh, on our discussion right there and ask you about um, how, how does it how does a book um, does, does that mean that when you're a, a writer like you are, you'll get lots of you just said it's sort of random people will call up and say, hey, I saw you wrote a, you know, a co-authored a great book because you're not a ghostwriter. Some people are ghostwriters. You never know who they are. Martin Dugard is a well-known writer. Um, so do you is is that a different thing? Is there are your are friends of yours ghostwriters that are just purely in the background? Oh sure, I know people like that. <clears throat> it's uh, it's a different thing because when you do that, you you have to completely submerge your own voice. 
right. and you have to find the voice of other people. And I don't do ghost stuff. It's yeah. not like it's a vanity thing for me, but uh, I do like the sense of collaboration. And, mm-hmm. you know, usually I'm very, a very solitary person, but when you find someone or, you know, an individual or an idea to collaborate on, it, it's nice to have both voices present on the on the title page. Uh, one more question on that. You mentioned Patterson's style. Do you or do you know, you must, I mean, I think you must, but the uh, Edward Stratemeyer, the Stratemeyer Syndicate, where all of the Nancy Drew books and all the Hardy Boys books, I, there's two reasons. I, I My family is originally from Elizabeth, New Jersey, which is where Stratemeyer's from, but I also love the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew growing up and only, Bobsy Twins, and only later did I learn about this incredible Incredible formula. I mean, that Edward Stratemeyer had come up with, and for decades and decades, he would send the outline, and and it would be, it was this sort of, and he took all the credit. Did, have you tracked that guy? Do you know who I, who I mean? <laughs> um, no, but it makes sense because it, I've like like any you know book nerd. <laughs> yeah, I grew up uh, with the Hart, I, I grew up with the Hardy Boys, and you know, and, and when there was a Hardy Boys book, I might read an N.C. Drew book. Um, yeah, yeah, but I will say. But I will, but I will say that that formula, you know, it goes all the way back to Alexander Dumas, the guy who wrote the Three Musketeers. Right. right. He he was very prolific in his life, but he he had he he farmed out a lot of his work and put his name on it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now to the book, Taking Berlin. So first first part of this, it, these series are in your voice. This is you, and I've only known you uh, talking to you uh, with the Taking series. So that on one level, that must be sort of. Uh, I mean, I know before these other collaborations you did lots of writing yourself but this is a very successful series now the taking series and it is uh your voice right i mean that's a taking paris was the first book uh taking berlin is up coming in a few days uh that must be its own satisfaction i suppose yeah you know uh you know i did nothing but the killing series for gosh 11 years mm-hmm. um and so you know i got very comfortable you know enjoy working with bill and but there's a, there are a lot of little flourishes and a lot of little alleys that I like to go down, right. um, and that Bill would Bill would say, "No, we're going let's take that out." Um, so it's nice to be able to keep them in, <laughs> and also too to you know to not to not write trying to sound like Bill O'Reilly. It's nice to, it's nice to write sounding like me, and yeah. a lot of the a lot of the little things that I came up with when we wrote Killing Link in the first Killing book, a lot of the little stylistic things like, you know, writing in the present tense, uh, mm-hmm. you know, writing, you know, short, snappy chapters, kind of little, you know, James Patterson-ish, all these little lessons I learned other places I brought to the Killing series. It's nice to take them into the Taking series and, you know, Bill, Bill loves action. Bill loves detail and mm-hmm. stuff. I also, I'm a big fan of emotion. So I like to find that, that, that cause, like, why does a character do something? Why do, why do, why do we care about that person? So there's a little bit more, um, there's no less action, but there's a little bit more of that raw human emotion in there. Well, and, and certain the details you talk about action. I, is it the Taking Paris book? You'll remind me because you wrote it, and my memories are fading. Um, but there's that one of the scenes in the early chapters of the, the, a bomb. A bomb falls on the city, like right next to where everybody is, and they were having a meal. And I mean, for me, you tell from re- having read that whenever that was the the takeaway. Um, we're talking with Martin Dugard again. The the uh, his website to follow all of his books, martindugard.com. The newest uh, book is uh, called Taking Berlin: The Bloody Race to Defeat the Third Reich. So. Uh, 
Uh, Martin, I know you, I, I, don't, I won't ask if you read your, the reviews of your work, but I was looking through, looking at people writing that only a few people. I was one of them. Thank you for that. I had a copy of the book before it was out. And uh, someone and I caught this, too. But someone said uh, in this Taking Berlin, short chapters, you already described that lots of sort of action. But also it seemed even more than I remembered in Taking Paris. Uh, individuals and in one of these sort of reviews i don't know who wrote it they talked about martha gellhorn who is was at a, a, a war correspondent of her of her own right that someone you shouldn't say this only but she was married to hemingway that's sort of how we know her but you you ended up using people to carry the moments across was that more intentional this time is that something you found works and you like yeah, because it was different. With Taking Paris, everything revolved around a location, and everything revolved around what was happening in Paris. And so that made it more event-driven. You, know, you had a bombing. You, you had a, you know, the, the Jews being rounded up and, and courted in, in the velodrome. You, you had these events that carried that story. Um, the events for Taking Berlin, you know, it, it starts with D-Day. It goes all the way to May 1945. The events are so big that if I, you know, if I, if I want to write a, a big section about D-Day and then write about Market Garden and, and write about, you know, the actual, you know, Operation Bagration, the, mm-hmm. the Russian thing, they were so big. They, they're books unto themselves. Um, so what I try to do in the middle of that is, is show the action through the eyes of the people who were, who were vital to the action. So, you know, obviously George Patton and, and Bernard Law Montgomery for mm-hmm. the, the, the right. generals, but also. General James Gavin, a 37-year-old two-star general who was at the forefront of the modern paratroop uh, movement. And then with this woman who kind of, I did not see her coming, but she, Martha Gellhorn, kind of came out of nowhere. And she was present at all these things. She was, she went ashore on D-Day. She stowed stowed away in a hospital ship, went ashore on D-Day. You know, she was part of Market Garden. She had an affair with Gavin. She, she was there when the Russians and the, the Americans linked up in Germany. Uh, and she wrote about this vividly, and, and she's kind of in this this place where she's only Hemingway's wife. And, and that's what I thought of her. It's like, oh, she's, you know, this cute little blonde who is Hemingway's wife. And then you read her stuff, and she's better than Hemingway when it comes to journalism. And she was way more adventurous than Hemingway. I mean, she lost her press credentials because of that stowaway incident, and she still kept finding a way to get herself to the front lines and um, and continue reporting for the, the rest of the war. And her stuff is fantastic. Just completely wonderful. Uh, Taking Berlin is a book, The Bloody Race to Defeat the Third Reich, uh, and it's um, um, set in, uh, I guess it starts in fall of 1944 and goes forward towards Berlin. Do you, um, when you, and I want to say, oh, it's Dutton Caliber is the publisher. I always uh, hit the publisher, so if you're trying to find the book, although it's available everywhere, and again, martindugard.com is uh, Martin's website. Um, do you, uh, uh, with Taking Berlin, when you see that, and you're so deep into it, do you look at different events now and do you look say at um, current events Europe right now differently do you see yourself and say you know nobody really is understanding uh, the difference I mean you talk about World War II and taking Berlin all of that's different than modern America you know whether you're uh, excuse me modern uh, Europe or the the world when you're talking about say Kiev I mean taking Kiev it's just a different world because of the the different kinds of uh, but how do you look at the present uh, world situation with all you've learned you know, it's it's that's a really good question, and I don't want to go into the weeds politically, but 
there's a lot of a lot of things that happened then are happening again now and we have people like putin who's trying to recreate 1945 and he's trying to be a strong man like like stalin was and you know we talked today about the big lie well the big lie was actually coined by adolf hitler mm-hmm. so and that and then it was picked up and then it was picked up by stalin and then putin is using it so you have you have a lot of things that are flashbacks to another very uh, scary time in history, and it's it's just weird to see how this is playing out, especially with the Ukraine. Um, what Putin is doing is completely straight out of World War II. It's just one of those things where as I watch it unfold, it's almost like you can predict it if you go back and look at the history. Is um, So, all right, what's next, by the way? I'm going to run out of time. So it's a taking series. There's got to be another taking coming. Is have you? Can you reveal that, or are you, are you uh, waiting to see how taking Berlin is received? No, I, I can talk about it. It's, it's taking London. So, um, okay. and I'm, I'm kind of halfway through it. I'm about halfway through it right now. We're going to, I didn't write these in linear fashion. So we had Paris, which is May 1940 to August 1944. We had, you know, Berlin, which is 19, uh, June 1944 to May 1945. We're going all the way back to May 1940 for the Battle of Britain and the Blitz from May 1940 through May 1941. Um, mm. And so doing the research, I actually went over to London. I flew in a Spitfire just to get a feel for what it was like to do that. Wow. So uh, we're, often, we're often running with this new one. That's uh, that will be fun. And, 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 and actually, in some ways, there's a good um, there's sort of a good wave or the, the, the water is is warm for a lot of people have paid attention like to to Churchill and these some of the movies and some of the the uh, war rooms over there. Right. That's gotten so much attention. I think you'll find a, a, an interested audience. OK, Martin Dugard, thank you. Anything anything I guess I always should do this more often, but I don't I always stomp on uh, authors. But anything I'm, uh, that you want to offer about the book as it comes out, uh, that sort of interesting that in particular. I think in particular, people know me from the Killing Books, and I yeah. want to tell people that if if you love the Killing Books, you're going to love the Taking series. And in Taking Berlin, as much as I loved Taking Paris, I was just so proud of it. I think Taking Berlin is twice as good. It's twice as fast. It's twice as riveting. The action is heightened, um, and it really it's a very much you are there. Um, I mean, I visited all the sites. Uh, I walk in the footsteps of all these people, and I, I take the reader and I put them right there with me. Hmm, great. All right, Martin Dugard, we'll uh, look for it, and I'll encourage people. And uh, thanks for uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. I know it's a busy schedule with a book coming out and all your research. So best of luck with it all. Yeah, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Okay, we'll take a break, everybody. We'll be back. I'll put up on social media all those details so you can track them all down. There's uh, make sure to link to his website as well as uh, to his previous books and uh, fascinating history and, and writing. So uh, it's great and it's very good. I, I tell you, the best uh, one of the best aspects of it is the short chapters. It just makes it easy. It's like a, it's made for the modern uh, mind and the modern mentality. It just bops along, uh, and it also gives you bite-sized chunks to read. So uh, we'll take a break. We'll be right back. It's Edmar here on the Pro-America Report, back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, presenting a daily conservative pro-family perspective since 1983 and continuing the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. And now, from the archives of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, here is Phyllis Schlafly. Today is the anniversary of the dedication of the Statue of Liberty, which was dedicated on October 28, 1886. The impressive statue was a gift from the government of France. It was designed by Auguste Bartholdi, who wrote, This statue was born for the place which inspired its conception. 
May God be pleased to bless my efforts and my work and to crown it with success, the duration and moral influence which it ought to have. On his 50th anniversary in 1936, President Franklin D. Roosevelt stated, The Almighty did prepare this American continent to be a place of the second chance. Millions have found freedom of opportunity, freedom of thought, freedom to worship God. President Dwight Eisenhower said in 1954, I have just come from the dedication of a new stamp. The stamp has on it a picture of the Statue of Liberty and our slogan, In God We Trust. It represents a nation whose greatness is based on a firm, unshakable belief that all of us mere mortals are dependent on the mercy of a superior being. On July 3, 1986, President Ronald Reagan relighted the Statue of Liberty and said, I've always thought that God had his reasons for placing this land here between two great oceans to be found by a certain kind of people. I grew up during the Great Depression, and our family never had the money to take a vacation. After I finished school and was making a salary, I was able to fulfill one of my father's great desires. I took him to New York to see firsthand the Statue of Liberty, and that was a thrill for him and for me. Here's a good suggestion for parents and grandparents. Take your children and grandchildren for a ride on a boat through New York Harbor so you can get a good look at our great American Statue of Liberty. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Whether it's the vision of our founding fathers, the courage of our veterans, the moral compass of Christopher Columbus, or the fortitude of presidents like Lincoln and Reagan, the truth of history should not be undercut by liberal ideology. At Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, we honor history even as we look to the future. Join us at phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, I'm finishing up today with some praise. Praise for a Democrat. Praise for an inner city Democrat. Are you ready for that? I rise today to praise Mayor Bowser of Washington, D.C., who I have not praised and do not really respect on a whole bunch of issues. But I have to tell you on the issue of Norcan... Norcan is a drug. Excuse me, I'm mispronouncing it. Narcan. Narcan is an incredible drug that was designed to counteract fentanyl overdose. And Narcan, if it's used in a timely manner, you got to use it right away. If somebody's overdosing on fentanyl, it literally snaps them out of it. Now, my brother is the Marine. You know, we talk about my Marine Corps brother. He, as, as a firefighter now up in Massachusetts, he's trained extensively for overdoses because, of course, fentanyl coming from the Chinese, uh, the evil, evil Chinese regime, sending us fentanyl through the evil, evil Mexican cartels is killing over 100,000 Americans every year. And it's an epidemic. But if you have Narcan... It's literally you can if someone's if someone right now knocked on your door and said, uh, there's someone overdosed in the in the front yard or a block away. What can you do? And I'd say I have Narcan. I'd run there. And if you give it within a few minutes, 10 minutes, five minutes, whatever, you can literally snap them out of it like, like that. So I went to get it in D.C., excuse me, in, in uh, Virginia and at a CVS. I'm sorry, CVS. But your guy behind the counter said, oh, no, sorry, you need a prescription. I said, no, no, I looked online. You don't need a prescription anywhere. 
And they said, no, no, we, we require a prescription and we have to order it. I said, well, that's terrible. And I said, okay, I'll regroup and see what I can do. And I happened to go into the office and I was walking around the office in, in D.C. up on Capitol Hill. I went for a walk. It was a nice day. I felt like I should get out. And as I walked around, I saw there's an old pharmacy there, like a family pharmacy. I went inside. I said, could I get some? Do you sell Narcan? And they said, oh, I, I, we don't sell it. No, we give it away. I said, what's that? They said, we give it away. There's a program that the Washington, D.C. Uh, government does, and you get it for free. All you have to do is give your name and your date, date of birth so they have a record, and you can have it for free. And I walked away with three packages of two hits of Narcan. It's a nasal spray. And I got to tell you, it's so stupid that you have to try, that CVS in, in Virginia doesn't know, but God bless D.C. And I got to tell you right now, I'll talk more about this. I'm running out of time, but you should go and get yourself Narcan. You should get yourself Narcan and have it. If something happens in your neighborhood, in your building, and whatever, you have a way to do it. It doesn't take any effort. It doesn't take anything small. You don't have to do it. inject anything. It's a nasal spray. It's sprayed in somebody's nose. If you think that, if you think they had an OD, even if they didn't, if it was something else, it doesn't do any damage. I'll talk more about this. Uh, I, I promise. I'll come back to it. So, congratulations to Mayor Bowser of Washington D.C. You get my praise and thanks. All right, we got to run. Thank you also to Noah Dingley, our producer. Joanna Spilger, associate producer. We will be back tomorrow. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Talk to you then. This is the Pro America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.